Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. In today's episode, we are joined by Tobias Carlyle. Tobias is an investor and fellow podcast host with his Value After Hours that he runs with a former guest of ours, Jake Taylor. Tobias is also an author of multiple books. So Niklas, which one will we speak about today? So today we will speak about The Acquirer's Multiple. This is a book that is a condensed version of, of the earlier books that Tobias has, has written. And in the book, he described the philosophy of deep value investing and the factors he used in his quantitative approach to investing called The Acquirer's Multiple. I think it's an eye-opener as it discusses how most investors actually perform worse by adding an analysis of the business in addition to what the Acquirer's Multiple tells you. The Acquirer's Multiple was published in 2017 by Ballymore Publishing and we are honored to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Tobias Carlyle. Hello, Tobias, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to have you on, and, and thank you for taking the time. Where are you located this time? I'm in Los Angeles, in California, in the US. In your home office or, or another place? Yeah, this is my this is my home office. I had an office, but I let it go during the pandemic, and uh, I just prefer working from home, so I'm going to continue doing that. And for those not familiar with you, maybe you can share a few words about your background and what led you into the world of investing. Sure. I'm Australian. Uh, I was a lawyer. I started practicing law in 2000, uh, April 2000, which was right at the very peak of the dot-com 1.0 boom. And I thought that I was going into work on venture capital type investments. I really liked venture capital. It was very faddish, very fashionable at the time. I like startups and venture capital and that kind of stuff. And uh, but the first day in the office was sort of the peak and then it all sort of fell away and pretty quickly none of the venture capital deals were getting done and the market was um, got crushed. And so a lot of the work that I did was um, working on sort of there, there were a, lot of, a lot of these businesses failed and so I worked on you know cleaning up that mess. But as that sort of happened, some of these companies had gone public with and they had raised a lot of money, but they were burning cash, which is very common for early stage businesses in in booms like that. And there were these investors who would come along and get control of these companies and use the cash to either buy out all the other shareholders or they'd then use the company as a platform to acquire other similar companies. And I watched a few people do that. And I had a little bit of trouble understanding what they were doing because I had read all of Buffett's letters and security analysis and the intelligent investor. And I was very much a um, wonderful company at a fair price kind of investor. Or, or that was my, I wasn't really investing at that point. I was, that was my sort of mindset. And I realized that, of course, what they were trying to do is get, get control of the cash. Eventually, it wasn't initially kind of obvious to me that that was the case. And so I um, went back to security analysis because I had remembered that there were these very obscure chapters i think it's like chapter 28 29 where they talk about the liquidation value of a company and then immediately after that is sort of the relationship of shareholders and directors in these sort of instances when the company is undervalued and i realized that that was what they were doing 
And uh, I thought it was very interesting and it sort of quickly, it was only a very short period of time. It was only about a year or 18 months that that happened. And I thought next time that happens, I will, um, I'll try and participate in it because I realized that it only happens very occasionally. Most of the time, the, the market is too expensive and those opportunities just don't exist. And so I continued working. I got transferred to the US, to San Francisco, because I had a sort of technology telecommunications background. And I worked in San Francisco on acquisitions of technology companies. Um, and then I had listed a company in Australia, uh, which was a telecommunications company that did dark fiber and peering networks and uh, those sort of infrastructure for telecommunications and internet backbone stuff. We built a deep sea cable uh, and eventually that business was sold in uh, 2008 and the founders made a lot of money. And I, uh, at that time, the market was getting close to a, a bottom, which happened in 2009. And so I resigned. Well, the business was sold. I was working in a little fund uh, that was doing sort of the act activist type investment. And uh, I worked there for a few years and then started my own little fund in Australia trying to find net nets. In 2010, there weren't a lot around. So I, I, I had to sort of evolve my investment strategy a little bit. And so I went from net nets to, to more of a sort of private equity approach, which I had read this document written by this investment bank called Piper Jaffrey, and it was called uh, the Endangered Species Report or Hunting Endangered Species. And the idea was that there were these companies that were too small to fit into the Russell 2000. They had fallen below the Russell 2000. But by any other sort of metric, they were very, very good businesses that were growing very fast. They were controlled by a family. They were um, making lots of money, but they were just ignored by these indexes and they couldn't get any attention from institutional shareholders. And as a result, they were all undervalued. And the that was probably what created the activist boom. And so I uh, was became very interested in that and did some research and started writing about it on a blog called Greenbacked. And through Greenbacked, I met uh, my co-author, Wes Gray, and we wrote a book called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. Quantitative Value, um, we went and found every little bit of industry and academic research that we could find and we tested it in uh, a system. So he was at Booth, which was the uh, Chicago School of Business, a very good quantitative school in the States. We went and tested all of these old ideas and we were looking at things that were from the 1930s, you know, these metrics for manufacturing businesses from the 1930s where they had these, someone had just done a, a like a linear regression of the various things that indicate when a company might be getting into trouble. And they ha had all these funny little coefficients beside, you know, days uh, inventory outstanding or days payables or any of those sort of things. And we tested them and found the things that worked and the things that didn't work and altered them a little bit to sort of make them, bring them up to date and published that book. And uh, that I've been sort of writing books and running money since then. Cool. And, and one of the books you have, you have written is The Acquirer's Multiple that we will discuss today. Why did you decide to write the book? Well, I had written Quantitative Value as sort of a quasi-textbook. Uh, it's, if anybody has has read it, it's it's got some daunting math and uh, algebra in it, 
and um, it's not particularly accessible to most investors. It's really for people who are practitioners and who want that deep dive. And after that, I wrote, well, there was, there, there was an unusual phenomenon that we had observed when we were doing the work, and that was that, and this is the, this is common across sort of deep value where many of the things that you might expect to see in an investment sort of reverses a little bit when things get very, very undervalued. So, for example, in a net-net world, a company that is an unprofitable net-net tends to outperform a profitable net-net. And similarly, a dividend-paying net-net underperforms a non-dividend-paying net-net and so on. So all of these things are very counterintuitive and there's quite a lot of counterintuition in in the deepest undervaluation. And partly the reason is that, uh, for, you know, for the same reason that you don't want to invest in the very best business, you want to invest in the best business at the best price. It's sort of more of a handicapping how much value are you getting for how much money are you spending. That same idea persists. And so I wrote Deep Value just to sort of discuss that idea and the actual mechanics of mean reversion and how participants in the market cause mean reversion to occur. And I had an opportunity to write a book with some other gentlemen called Concentrated Investing where we looked at, so stock selection is one part of the problem, but then you also have a portfolio management issue as well. And you can be a very good stock picker and not run a very good portfolio because you're overly concentrated in the wrong things or you're not taking advantage of opportunities when they appear. So concentrated investing, we looked at a lot of the academic research into portfolio diversification and concentration. And then we looked at how some practitioners who had done it, who had been in the markets for a very long period of time, 25 years or more, who had succeeded over that period of time running concentrated books, and what was it that they did that was different from many other investors? And again, those books were, if you publish through this publisher, they're expensive. All of the books um, were written to a pretty high uh, reading level. I subsequently discovered, so I, I just, after I had written three of these books, I found that there's a quantitative system for determining the reading level that you need. And it, it basically it equates to, what year of schooling you got to. And if you write, and my, these books were written to sort of second year university level. Um, but if you want to write a book that many people will read, you can't write it above a fifth grade reading level because that cuts out an enormous proportion of the population. So I wrote, I wanted to write a book that I could give to people who weren't necessarily familiar with the stock market and I wanted it to be accessible to as many people as possible. And I also wanted it to be able to be read in a very short period of time, like a couple of hours, if you sat down and read it in one go. And so that was the Acquirer's Multiple. It's basically a, a very brief summary of much of what I had written beforehand in a way that was easy to read. Uh, you didn't need to be a stock market expert and it sells. It's, I, I don't know what the price is now in Amazon. I don't know what it is in in Sweden, but it's, you know, the objective, it was about $10 in the US. So it was supposed to be a pretty cheap book too. It's very generous of you to share all this knowledge and all the research you have done. I mean, what was your, your motivation for sharing that with the public? Well, I use it, uh, you know, I use it to help market my business and my businesses. I run two ETFs in the States, two exchange traded funds. Um, one is a mid cap, large cap domestic US deep value fund uh, 
the ticker is ZIG, Z-I-G, as in you zig when the market zags. And I run uh, a small and micro cap version as well, which is called Deep, as in deeply undervalued. And both of those funds follow the principles that I have discussed. They, they are quantitative, deep value, um, seeking businesses that are too cheap, might be, might be bought out and also have, they're at the, the bottom of their business cycle rather than the top of their business cycle because it's one of the traps when you're investing and you look on a, a multiple or a ratio and you might see that it's cheap relative to its trailing one, three, five years, but it's because it's a business that's highly cyclical and most people in the market realize that it's cyclical. So lots of um, you know basic materials are extremely cyclical, so iron or or even oil or any of those sort of things. So it's uh, it's a way of finding things that are cheap, but also cheap in a business that's troughing. So that's the, that, and that, that idea, if you've been investing for a while, I think that idea becomes, you understand that that's what you're, what you're attempting to do. But if you've never invested before, it can be quite daunting to take a look at some of these companies. And that was one of the things that I found as, as a money manager that I would show people the portfolio and they'd become very nervous about the portfolio because it looked like it was filled with sort of these very junky companies. But I would say if you looked at the, they have, they all had very long histories where they had good times and they had bad and we were buying them in a bad time. And so naturally the, the history looks bad or the near history looks bad. But there's always the possibility that the future could look better, and it doesn't. That doesn't only apply to uh, cyclical businesses. So, for example, last year we bought Meta, which is Facebook. I don't. It's funny how quickly the um, the attitudes towards businesses change. You don't have to be in the market for very long, but Facebook was extremely popular at one point, and then it was uh, very unpopular not that long ago, a year or two ago. And that was largely because they were spending so much money in the in the metaverse, but the business remained incredibly robust. It was throwing off lots of free cash flow. It's controlled by one shareholder, essentially Mark Zuckerberg, who continues to be the primary, uh, the principal of that business. And they have, were buying back some stock, and really, that's all that I want. Pretty robust business. And of course, that now it's turned around and it's it's run back up to close to it's it's all time highs, and we're we're out of that position. So, but, but that's the that's sort of what we're looking for. We're agnostic to the business. We'll buy an iron ore miner or a coal mine, and we'll equally will buy Facebook. It just depends a little bit on 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 where they are in their cycle. We'll go a bit deeper into your uh, investing style uh, a bit uh, later on in the conversation. But uh, if we stay on with the book and the acquires multiple, maybe you can describe for our listeners the fundamentals of the approach. The idea is that the acquires multiple itself is, I, I read this when I was at university, I used to sit in the business library and read some of the old, this might be even before you guys, but it, they used to have these journals and the journals were available on Uh, they'd come out one after the other in physical format and they'd put them in these ring binders. And then at some point it transitioned to CD-ROM and then it was on the internet. It was on the internet when I got there, but none of these old uh, journals had been digitized. They were just sitting in the the library and I would just go through and read them. And one of them had described, it was written during the 1980s during the leverage buyout 
boom in the 1980s and it described this uh, acquirer's multiple, which was the way that leveraged buyout private equity firms thought about valuing a business. And the idea was they were looking at, because they can manipulate the uh, the capital structure, they can add debt or you know pay out cash or do lots of other things, they're interested in the operating income that's coming into that business. So operating income, if you think about revenues, are that's the, the, the money that comes in from sales. But then, of course, there's a cost of those sales, the cost of goods sold. And that leaves you with a gross profit. And out of the gross profit comes sale, selling general and administrative, SG&A. And that's the, what it sounds like, selling general and administrative costs of, of getting the that business to that point. And then from that point on, that money can be directed in various different ways. And so that's the number that I was interested in. It's the operating income, which is basically the first point that the company really has any discretion about how it's going to spend its money. And so it's sometimes called EBIT or EBITDA, operating income. They're really, they're interchangeable. But I like that construction from the top of the income statement down because it's harder to manipulate as you get closer and closer to the bottom line. There are many decisions that management can make. They have a lot of discretion about how they recognize income and so on. So you can have two companies that are essentially the same that have different bottom lines, but their operating income is similar and they should be compared on a like-for-like basis. But you want to take out all of those decisions that management have made as you travel down the income statement. And then you have to compare it to something. And so that's that's really what you're getting, that income stream. And what you're giving, what you're paying, is the price of the equity but anybody who owns a home knows that the equity that you have in your home is not the entire price of your home because when you buy your home you take out a home loan and so you might put down 10 percent. the mortgage might be 90 percent of the price that you paid so that debt needs to be accounted for when you're thinking about what you're paying and so we include debt in that calculation and so this is the enterprise value of a company is debt plus the equity and then sometimes you might find a safe buried inside your house and inside the safe there's some cash and you get to keep that cash and you can use that to pay off your business and so there are these companies out there that have so much cash on their balance sheet they have no debt but they're trading at a discount to cash naturally because they're losing money that it's never these aren't great businesses when you find them like that as you as you'd expect but you know that is that is if you're if you're if you have this private equity or acquirer's mindset, you can direct that cash flow, and so you might be able to get control and use that cash. And so I use enterprise value as the that's what we're paying. Operating income is what we're getting, and the the, the relationship of operating income to enterprise value is known as the acquirer's multiple. So that's essentially, and what we found is if you if you test that idea and you just buy the cheapest companies on an acquirer's multiple basis. They tend to outperform the next cheapest and so on until you get to the most expensive, which tend to underperform everything else over a very long time period on average, not every year, not, not every five or 10 years. But that, that's essentially the, uh, the, the big muscle movement that drives the performance of the portfolio. And that's what the book discusses. And the book was published in 2017. So your period where you were measuring the performance, I think it started in 1972 until 2017 how much was this out this strategy outperforming the the index approximately i don't i don't recall exactly what i put in the book 
or, or what the test was, but you can see in the book that it had this massive period of outperformance and then a period of underperformance began in 2000, somewhere between 2010 and 2015. There's quite a big drop off in the chart, which is not uncommon. So I've subsequent to writing the book, I, I met a gentleman by the name of Michael Samanov, Mikhail Samanov, and he has done this analysis. He calls it two centuries of value. And so he looked back, uh, I think it was into the 1800s in any case. It's a very long period of time. And he's stitched together three um, data series to create this. So the one that runs from, there's, there's a data series that point, the best data that we have is only US-based from 1963 until the present day. And point in time means that they record the financial statements as they're issued, not as they are, uh, not for the, so timing when backtesting is, is always a problem because you, you might not know exactly when a, a financial statement was issued. And so you might be trading on information that you couldn't have possibly known at the time. The, the backtest system assumes that you were. So what point in time does is it makes sure that you're not doing that. And it also retains any companies that go bankrupt in the database. So you could buy something and it could go bankrupt. So that's the best data that we have. And then before that, that, that data actually runs back. Before that, there's to, to 1925 is less good data, but still pretty good data where we've captured balance sheets and so on. From... 1925 to 1875 was this thing called the Cowles Commission, where there was a gentleman who was trying to work out whether uh, stock writing newsletters had any skill. And he used these punch cards and a very ancient uh, computer to work out whether any of these newsletter writers had any skill. But that data that came from the Cowles Commission, Benjamin Graham used in, in making his decisions about what went into security analysis. So that gets us back to 1875. Then from 1875, I think it goes it's possibly 1825. It might be as early as that. They somebody has found all of the all of the financial statements that they can find, and there aren't a lot around, but they've been able to find a lot. And they've looked at the dividends that these companies paid because they didn't have to publish. You know, they weren't. We didn't get cash flow statements. We didn't get income statements. I think we only got balance sheet, which showed what companies owned and it wasn't there was no obligation to produce this stuff but you could see dividend payments they were known and they were real and that's also a way of assessing value if something's got a high dividend yield it's cheap relative to its dividend payments and so they use that data so i just i go into that detail just so you, the old data is obviously it's not as good as the as the current data but you can still see these it's it still behaves exactly the way you'd expect in relation to uh, value. The, the cheaper stuff tends to outperform the more expensive stuff. But there are some very interesting things that become observable in this data, and that is there are all of these recessions and depressions and technology booms that occurred hundreds of years ago that we've largely forgotten about. And one example is there was a thing known as the Great Depression before the 1929 Great Depression. When the 1929 Great Depression was called the Great Depression, they had to change the name of the old Great Depression, and so it's now known as the Long Depression. But there are quite a few. It's not. It's that, they, and they all have these. They must have been, you know, famous kind of depressions, the way that we think about the the 1929 Great Depression. But it's interesting to watch. You can see these little technology bubbles, and these technology booms along the way. And the first technology boom is the steam engine. 
So the steam engine is about 1825 and that's Commodore Vanderbilt has these steam boats. And so that's, there's a fat, there's a fad for steam and those steam engines become very popular. And then in 1844, there is a technology boom, which is the, um, which is the telegraph. They laid a cable from, I think from New York to, uh, to London, a subsea cable. And before then information travel as fast as the wind did across that sea. There were genuine arbitrages. You could be a gold arbitrager, and there was such a big difference in the price between London and New York. You could make money doing that. Whereas when the when the cable came in, it became much more difficult because the price is sort of largely normalised. What that long history shows is that there are these very long periods of underperformance for value, and they're typically associated with these technology booms or these manias in the stock market. And there have been many, but there are there are six very long periods of value underperformance going back to about 1825. And one of them happens to be from about 2010 until about 2020, midway through 2020. So the book was written in 2017 and it captured the first part of this underperformance. And it seems since about mid 2020 that value has done much better. But the book, I'll have to write an update to the book where I show the the eventual turnaround, but it, I find it I, f- I find it fascinating because it's it feels like an extremely long period of time to underperform from 2010 to 2020. But uh, in the very long history, it's it's not that long at all. I mean, it's it's quite tough. I mean that that figure in terms of active managers. I mean, in 10 years, you would be gone. Right, you wouldn't have a job. And that's true. There've been many many value managers who've shut down or have disappeared. And if you think about the value managers who are well-known today, most of them tend to be people who established their reputation before 2010. There are many from the early 2000s and there are many from before then, but there really aren't very many since 2010. It would be very hard to name any value managers who've done well. So David Einhorn, of course, was pre-2010. Um, Dan Loeb is pre-2010. Bill Ackman is pre-2010. Monish Pabrai, pre-2010. Uh, Guy Spear, pre-2010. Since 2010, there really aren't, there's nobody really. In the second episode of Investing by the Books, we spoke to to your good friend, uh, Jake Taylor, about his book, The Rebel Allocator, and, and that Charlie Munger had asked him <laughs> to uh, uh, make a movie out of it. And then we asked him, like, is this on the table now? And he said, well, we need to find some, some money and uh, maybe the value community c- can support it, what's <laughs> left of us. <laughs> and there wasn't much right. at the time it felt like there was no not many value investors left but now it's the wind is changing so so this quantitative approach that uh, you're mentioning i mean many of our listeners are familiar with joel greenblatt's work and and the magic formula and you also compare uh, it to to that work in, in your book so maybe you can talk a bit about the influence that greenblatt has had on, on your work so i loved Greenblatt's book, the little book that beat the market, I bought that when it first came out in about 2005 and read it and loved it because I, you know, there you can read Buffett's letters and get an idea of his approach, but I, to my knowledge, nobody had quantitatively tested what he was saying or had really um, taken his words and turned them into investment ratios that you could apply. And Greenblatt did that. He looked at two metrics. So he, Buffett is well known for saying that he likes a wonderful company at a fair price. 
a fair price, he uses what he calls the earnings yield, which is the inverse of the acquirer's multiple. It's EBIT on uh, on enterprise value. It really makes no difference whether you take which way around that ratio goes, just so long as you remember that you're taking the high ratio in one way. You're preferring a high number in one and a low number in the other. And then he compared it to the wonderful company metric is the, um, again, the EBIT or the operating income. But then he looks at the assets that the company has. So he uses the uh, invested capital, and this is Buffett's return on invested capital. So everything else being equal, we want more profit per dollar of invested capital in the business because that indicates a better business. And it allows the company to either grow by reinvesting um, every incremental dollar then translates into more than a dollar of market value, or it allows you to pay out all of the money that the company earns and sustain that competitive position. When he put those two together and he tested it, and I, I commend him for the way that he did this testing. He just looked at Buffett's, look at what Buffett had written, turned that into an investment ratio and tested it over the, I think he looked over 16 years of data, something like that. And he found that that metric, that method um, outperformed, not all the time, not, not I, think, I think it underperformed one year out of four, but over the full data set, it was a very wide outperformance and it was very good performance. And I remember reading that and thinking that's, that's an amazing uh, approach and I'm so glad that that worked out. But I just wonder if, I wonder what the, the profitability metric or the wonderful metric is actually contributing here because I already had read this, um, the Endangered Species Report, which came out in about 1999. And I knew that the, uh, and they had done some testing in that, in that document. And I knew that the acquirer's multiple by itself delivered very good performance and so that was one of the things that Wes and I tested in quantitative value we looked at whether you needed both metrics and so what we found was that the acquirer's multiple delivers all of the return and a little bit more and the quality metric actually detracts from performance just a little bit so the reasons why you might still persist with the magic formula over just a pure value approach is exactly what we've then subsequently gone through which is that in a very um, bullish, bubbly market, these companies that have the very high returns on invested capital tend to outperform. And there's a, uh, a research report called The Little Note That Beats the Market. And I'm just blanking on the name of the author, but I hope that'll come back to me in a moment. But he looked at, uh, he'd also did some quantitative testing at that time. And he looked at the time series of the returns. And, he, and this was written uh, in about just after the book had come out, so it must have been written in 2006 or 2007. And he saw that having the wonderful company portion, the high return on invested capital, helped you to keep up with the market in those periods of uh, boom or bubble or tech sort of mania, where the value metric by itself tended to underperform quite substantially through that period. And then it had a big catch up in the after in the aftermath but and he noted this in the in the note he said while it is true that the the value metric by itself outperforms it does have these very long periods of underperformance and they might be so long that it's impossible for an investor to sort of sustain to stay in this strategy or for a manager to retain their job 
And so perhaps it is better to follow this combination of both rather than just relying on the one, even though it delivers better outperformance over the full period, because there'll be very long periods of underperformance, which maybe nobody can stomach that make you crazy or make you lose your job or something like that. But the margin of safety should be higher in, in the value approach that you're in the Aquarius multiple approach. Well, the, the, the margin of safety, you, you know, you're arguing for a margin of safety in both. The thing is these, both of these approaches are finding companies that are very, very undervalued. If you look at, if you think about how many, so in, in the US, the Russell 3000 is the largest 3000 companies. If your portfolio is 30 of those companies, you're already buying the very cheapest 1% of that universe. And so it's highly likely that those companies are undervalued or that there is some genuine problem with those businesses. And that's what I have found. It's very, very difficult to tell prospectively what you're looking at. Are you looking at something that has terminal decline? Are you looking at Kodak where it is cheap, but the business just is being superseded by better technology? Or are you looking at, and that's, that was, that's also the risk with something like Meta, you know, in, which, which only happened a few years ago it's possible that Meta was being superseded by something else. Or are you looking at something that could mean revert subsequently? I always think most businesses are probably close to fairly valued given the current information that we have. But your job as an investor is to imagine mean reversion in this business where the business itself improves. So it's most businesses are fairly valued based on their return on invested capital. And so when the return on invested capital is depressed, they get lower multiples. And so they, they may appear undervalued on a single ratio and businesses that have a great deal of earnings, great deal of return on a very high return on invested capital will command a high multiple and would all, but, but may also look fairly valued on that multiple. But the thing is you don't, get to invest in stasis it's not static it's dynamic and you have to then look at what occurs subsequently not knowing what's going to occur and so you have to take these bets and statistically the data seems to show that it's about 50 50 half the time the bet is right and half the time the bet is wrong so half the time the margin of safety is a complete illusion and the other half the time it's genuine and it's and it's there so you might say well that's terrible odds we're flipping a coin why would we do that and that's because this uh, investing, like any sort of speculation or gambling, the the key to it is the magnitude and frequency of return. So you can have infrequent returns if you have a very high magnitude and you can still do well taking a portfolio approach. Or you can have a low magnitude of returns, which is just small returns and a high frequency, which is lots. So lots of small returns is a good way of outperforming. Very few big returns is also a good way of outperforming, although it's harder to, to implement. Or you could have a strategy like mine, which is about 50-50. It's about a coin flip. But the ones that work, work a little bit more than the ones that don't work, which the argument would be, well, we're already buying something that's undervalued, so it's sort of closer to the bottom of its... Um, it's closer to the bottom of its cycle. Having said that, I buy plenty of stocks that go down 50% in very short order, so I don't want to make it sound like you're avoiding any of those things. It just so happens that on average across the portfolio, it does tend to slightly outperform because the magnitude is greater than the frequency demand. So it works. But 
it's uh, it, not all the time, obviously, as we talked about this long periods of underperformance. You mentioned both Buffett, Dan Loeb and David Einhorn previously, and those investors are profiled in, in the book. And, and you also profile Carl Icahn. I'm interested to, to understand. I mean, you mentioned, for example, that uh, Greenblatt uh, used what Buffett had, had written uh, in creating his approach. But what are the similarities to your approach with, for example, how Carl Icahn or Dan Loeb or David Einhorn um, ha- have worked or, and work? I use those investors. So those investors, what unites those investors is they're all activist investors. So an activist is someone who finds a company that has some sort of problem, either operationally or with its balance sheet. Often it's because it's got too much cash relative to the size of its business. And then they persuade management using various means, either by writing a letter uh, which is called a 13D letter, which is the filing that you're compelled to make or you're obliged to make as as an investor who buys more than 5% of the shares of a company in the States. And the purpose of it is to let other investors what you know what you intend to do. So you could file a 13G, which is a passive holding, I don't intend to do anything, or a 13D, which is an active holding, which says I intend to take this company over or run a proxy fight and so on. And so what these investors do is they take a position, um, not all the time, but in, in many of their positions, with the purpose of having management change the policies in relation to the balance sheet or the operations in order to improve the performance of the business. So Buffett clearly doesn't do that because he's, he, he's, um, he's much friendlier than that. The activists are sort of a, a tool or they, they use the, these legal mechanisms to compel management essentially to do something that will improve the value of the business. I think that my approach is not, I don't do any of the activist stuff. I don't actually approach management at any point in time, but I look for the same things that they do in the sense that I think that the undervaluation is as a result of some problem with the operations or the balance sheet. The thing about operational problems and there's lots of research, which I, I, di- I didn't discuss it in, in the acquirer's multiple. I do discuss it in, in deep value. There's a lot of research about the effectiveness of these different approaches. And so operational activism tends to not be as effective as balance sheet op- uh, activism. And so the reason is that operations are incredibly complex and it's unlikely that an outsider, I think, will, can do anything better than what management is already doing. Balance sheet activism is very simple and anybody can see. And so the example I give in the book is, is Apple. And I think it's a good example to, to sort of discuss, to, to, to illustrate the idea. Apple has had a long history and I'm, I'm talking about more modern day Apple where they had had some success with the iPhone. They were making lots of money. They had huge amounts of cash on their balance sheet. But there was this idea, I guess this is, 10 years ago now, there was this idea that these companies, if they use that cash to buy back stock, that would send a message to the market that they were no longer high growth companies because they were no longer investing this cash at very high rates of growth. And so none of these high tech businesses wanted to do that because they would then be sort of admitting, yeah, all of our growth opportunities are gone and we're no longer a growth business. And so Apple had just this mushrooming cash on its balance sheet 
that they didn't want to do anything with. And I can't, I think Einhorn approached them first and he had this idea that he called I prefs, which were preference shares that would essentially, it was like doing a buyback or paying out the cash. It was this complicated way of them not really admitting to the fact that they had run out of investment opportunities, but allowing them to kind of use this mechanism to get some of the cash out. And he said, doesn't the fact that you have all of this cash on the balance sheet sort of already show that you've run out of these investment opportunities that you should be returning this to shareholders? Icahn came in and he's much, he's been around for a long time and he's much more direct. And he just said, you should be buying back enormous amounts of stock using this cash. There was a little bit of a back and forth for a while, but eventually Apple agreed and they adopted his approach and they started buying back stock. And of course, the stock is now the biggest company in the world. The stock price has been an absolute blockbuster return for that period of time. And so that's what I would consider balance sheet activism, where it's a very simple proposition. There's too much cash, you need to buy back stock. And if you do that over time, you can see there's lots of research that shows companies that buy back stock well, so they don't overpay, tend to generate these incredible performances. Buffett has also subsequently put a big position into Apple famously. We all know that. I think I say that it's the best the best investment ever because he put $40 billion or something like that. And he's now up five plus times on that investment over a very short period of time. And so his approach, he achieves the same thing, but without, without the sort of nasty letters and the bad feelings. He just goes in and he says, I love what they're doing and I want them to just keep on doing that. And so I, I, I prefer Buffett's approach where without the bad feelings and without the nasty letters. And I think that you can achieve the same thing just by choosing the right business where it looks like they're going to do the right thing anyway, or they're already doing the right thing. But I use those guys as an illustration of one of the uh, mechanisms that the market has to correct these undervaluations. And the other mechanism is simply mean reversion. Businesses have um, good periods and bad, and this is just a, this is very simple microeconomics. When good times happen for an industry, there are lots of new entrants into the industry and they compete away all of the super normal profits that that industry is earning until everybody's essentially earning their cost of capital. And then businesses tend to go through difficult times. They're just a cycle, a natural cycle to these things. And when the times get hard and it's harder to earn money in that business, in that industry, businesses leave because they're either they go bankrupt, they don't have enough money, or there's just it's easier to make money in an adjacent industry. And so they transition somewhere else. They they change their business line slightly. And that at that capital leaving the industry, eventually there are so few businesses that that can survive in that industry that when demand returns and they have to supply that demand for a period of time, they earn super normal returns and the whole process starts all over again. And so if you're an investor, the time to be entering that industry is when it's supply constrained and there's not been a lot of capital going into that business and the cost of capital is high. And so saying the cost of capital is high is just a complicated way of something saying that something is cheap. When the cost of capital is low, that means you've got a very high multiple and you can raise money very cheaply. When the cost of capital is high, you have a very low multiple and it's expensive to raise capital. So if you're an investor and what you're really supplying is capital, 
you want to go where the cost of capital is high and you want to supply capital at a high cost. And then when the cost of capital um, gets lower, then you then you, you sell it and you take it out and you move it on. And that's sort of essentially what I'm trying to do. And those are the two mechanisms in the book that I discuss, mean reversion for microeconomic reasons in the business and activism and acquisitions from other investors. And I think they're both good ways of of making money. You mentioned in the book, you describe more or less that it's unknowable to others than Buffett to to know which businesses will will be able to to defend the the, the modes that they have. As this is something many investors uh, focus on now, I want to to know, I mean, can you elaborate on on your point there? So there are probably only 300 or so businesses in the entire world that have these sustainable competitive advantages that earn a sustainable super normal return on invested capital and so what the, the problem is that you're always making a decision with limited information and the only times that these businesses get cheap either there's some system-wide crash so everything's cheap in which case you know it, that's an easier decision to make or there's a problem that's specific to that business and we might say So Facebook, again, Meta is a good example of that, where Meta clearly has a very high return on invested capital by the nature of its business. And it does seem defensible, even though it's competing with Google and it's competing with some very tough competitors out there. But it does seem to have uh, some competitive advantage that it has a network of vast numbers of people that it can sell advertising to, essentially. When Facebook got cheap, in the last 18 months or so, there was a question about whether it did in fact continue to have that advantage. Was it the case that TikTok with its reels was taking away eyeballs and users? And if you've, I've been in the market for long enough, I've seen, I remember MySpace, I remember all of these things come and go. These social networks fail all the time. And they have a, and you can see, you can still see it if you look at the, the popularity of these various websites they've clearly all come off a lot and the next generation doesn't want to use the same thing that their parents or their older siblings or their grandparents now use they want to use something that's brand new and specific to them and so there was a real possibility that facebook's business was in trouble i would hate to be someone having to make a decision on the sustainability of that competitive advantage I would much rather make a bet that this is so cheap that it really doesn't matter if it doesn't have a competitive advantage. It's a good business to buy here. It's worth taking a position in. So that's the point that I make, just that there's been an enormous amount of research done into competitive advantages um, by Morningstar, by uh, Michael Mabusen, um, take your pick. And the, the research is fantastic. We've all read it. We're all competing on exactly the same basis. We all agree. It's just that it's incredibly hard to know prospectively. And there's just so much randomness in the market anyway. Tastes change. People really like one thing one year and the next year they just change their mind. So it's hard to know. And Kodak is another great example. Kodak was a dominant business in the same way that Coca-Cola is a dominant brand. You know, there are songs about Kodak. it's, It's a... Even today, we all know what it is, even though nobody's really making fo- taking photographs with a Kodak camera. 
it's hard to know whether you're looking at a Kodak or a Coke. And you might say, well, the answer is avoid tech. But any business really can do that. And if you look at the businesses that have those very high sustainable returns and equity that everybody agrees have a moat, some of them are fashion businesses. LVMH has been great at identifying these things, but I don't know, will a Birkin bag continue to be as desirable in the future as it is now? I just don't know the answer to those things. There's no way quantitatively to demonstrate it, which says to me that there's no, I say quantitative sometimes, and really what I'm saying is you know, there's no scientific provable, demonstrable way to make these decisions. Now, Buffett has either figured something out that the rest of us don't understand or probably more likely, you know, he is an unusually gifted human being in the sense that he has this incredible memory. He's been doing this since he was 11 years old. And you can see any of those interviews that he does with, they just walk him through. They'll take him to the Nebraska Furniture Mart and they'll walk him through the carpet section and he can talk about how much they sell each bit of carpet for and the margin that he makes on each bit of carpet. And that's just one of a vast universe of businesses that he owns and he has that level of detail. I've been at, I've been at annual meetings where they, they'll say, talk to us a little bit about the, the traffic snarl in Chicago. And that's one of his because he has a train BNSF and he knows he's all over the detail of that. He's got an incredible mind. And most mere mortals don't have that mind, don't have that interest, haven't been doing it for as long. I think that to try and emulate him without having that, it's going to be tough. And so I think that the, an easier approach is just to say, well, okay, let's, let's, I'll just admit that I don't have that. Now, how do I solve the problem? And so that's essentially what I have done. I just say, I can't identify these companies that have moats. I don't know if anybody else can do it reliably either other than this incredibly gifted gentleman. And so I think I'll, I'll, I'll take the approach that I don't have that gift. How can I solve the problem otherwise? And that's, that's been my approach to it. And in the book, you really lay out, I mean, how one in, as an investor can use it practically as well. I mean, in the researching, in the buying, selling, and, and also rebalancing stocks. So we, we recommend everyone to buy the book and, and read those sections in detail. Um, but I'm curious to hear, like, how many investors are, do you think are actually using the method? What's the, has the response been? The, the thing that I have observed is that we're all very short term. People use these things for four months. And if they don't see immediate results, they move on to something else. And I think that really the key to investing, and I'm not saying it's the, the acquirer's multiple is, the acquirer's multiple is just one method of, of identifying value. There are many other methods of identifying value and they all work very, very well over a long period of time. Yeah. The real, the thing that you have to understand, the thing that I was trying to make clear in the book is that the idea is that you, you're trying to fish where other people aren't. You're trying to find things that you, you want to be away from the crowd. You want to be in the unloved, the downtrodden, the down at heel, because the things that people aren't looking at and they're not paying very much money for, now you have an opportunity where if something goes right in this business, you'll do very, very well. And so that's what I try to do where... It's tough because we've gone through a very long period of, un of underperformance. And so it's been very, very hard to stick with. But for me, it's sort of the, the logic of it appeals so much that the near-term underperformance, I can sort of ignore a little bit because I can't imagine, you know, you could be a momentum investor as well. That's perfectly, quantitatively seems to be, there seems to be a lot of um, evidence for momentum investing, quantitative evidence which is basically that you buy the company that's gone up the most, buy the stocks that have gone up the most and hold on to them for a period of time. 
there are there's there's a whole lot of sensitivity and there are all of these rules that you have to understand but it is achievable as an investor and i think for for many investors that's probably the better way of doing it because it's easier to buy something that's gone up but i i don't look at them as little bits of as prices or tickers i think of them as businesses and i think if you think of them as businesses then it doesn't make any sense to buy something that's gone up a lot it makes more sense to buy something where you're getting some pretty good earnings you're getting a yield because that's how we would buy a private business we wouldn't ask you know what did you buy what did you buy for what did you spend on it and then did you get an offer from somebody else what did they offer to buy it for okay those two things are going up well i'll buy it for more and therefore we've created some momentum in that stock it just doesn't make sense to me and so i i think if you can buy a good a reasonable business for a pretty good price um you should do pretty well knowing that there's all of this randomness and anything can happen and so you need to spread that idea over as many positions as you can. And you need to also survive to the next period of time because this might not be the good, it might not work this time, it might not work this decade, I don't know. But I'm prepared to stay in it and, and, uh, and find out basically. So yeah, the short term, the short term thing, if you, if you have a slightly longer term mindset, if you can force yourself to think in longer terms, you really have a huge advantage over every investor and long term is not that long anymore i've i think that really the last since the pandemic since sort of 2020 to date for whatever reason it's been an accelerated cycle we've seen a crash a boom uh like a return to earth of all of those very bubbly companies and last year was sort of a minor kind of market correction and then this year we've gone back into another nvidia ai boom and then we've had a magnificent seven run and who knows what comes next but it's probably you know down the other side so we've had all these in three or f three years three and a bit years we've had these incredible cycles if you could just stay a little bit sane and stand back from the crowd a little bit i think that there have been these obvious opportunities that have come along and i think that's all you really need to outperform is just to separate yourself from the crowd stay calm and sane and i think it's not that hard to do unless you're kind of in it all the time and thinking about it and FOMOing and participating. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the difficult thing just to stand back and sort of observe. Well, what recommendations do you have for our listeners in terms of that? The thing is, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Because the more you see these cycles and you kind of, I just, I love the Facebook one I find so funny because Facebook is, it just had such a wild ride and it's a huge company. It's very well known. Apple too, you know, Apple is a very well known company and you could have bought, you know, Einhorn and Icon, I don't know what year that was exactly, but 2016 or something like that. And then it got cheap and then Buffett has put an enormous amount of money to work in it. So you could have participated then. When, when quantitative value came out, we wrote up, to, to promote quantitative value, we did an analysis of a stock and the stock that we analyzed was Apple at the time. And we said, Apple is one of the cheapest companies in the large cap universe, but it's also a pretty good business. And we think it's probably going to work out well. And that, I think we wrote that that analysis came out in 2014 or something like that. So I've seen Apple get cheap on three different occasions. I saw it get cheap in 2014. Saw it get cheap again when Icon and Einhorn put their position on and it got cheap again when Buffett put his position on you'd need to be 
you only need two or three years to see those cycles. And then once you've seen those cycles, I think it's indelibly burned into your mind that it occurs. And all you need to do is not FOMO. Often things come back. The prices come back. So you don't need to chase them. You just wait. You'll get your opportunity. And I think that's really the, that more than anything else, that's the key to investing. Just don't, don't chase, don't, don't have that fear of missing out. You know, the funny thing is if you read Buffett's letters, you'll find he talks about FOMO years ago. He, he says that he knows the feeling and he talks about how painful it is to sit there when everybody's doing really well, desperately wanting, and he, he's got the cash. He wants to buy something. He's just like all the rest of us. He desperately, he loves buying stuff. He loves trading. And so he says, I can't tell you how hard it is. And he says, I know that the price... The, the risk is that the prices of the past were the aberration. You know, the cheap prices, that was what was wrong. And what we're seeing now, these maybe these high prices, maybe these just last forever. Maybe the market just gets more expensive over time. And any time that you don't buy, you're being left behind. But sure enough, like he's written that in 1986 or something like that, there have been a few cycles since then. There are going to be cycles. Just expect the cycles and don't get too caught up in the boom wait for the bus, that's when it gets really fun. And it's also, I mean, I, I mentioned that, I mean, he has this quality quality business approach, but at the same time, he always buys these businesses on the cheap. I mean, he never buys really high quality businesses at, at like a PE of 25. Right, very rarely. I think he, I think he might've spent, he might've bought Coke on a PE of around that level, but his thesis for Coke was, it's 25 times on an, it's American business only. And it's about to go on to this massive international expansion where it's going to be 25 times on the US. If you think about how big it could be globally, that means it's probably a very cheap price. And he says, I like to buy them on their current state, assuming no growth. And then when the growth occurs, which he also thinks is going to happen, but he doesn't know. He's just making a guess that the growth is going to occur. When the growth occurs, then he does very well. But you're right. It's a it's sort of a little bit of a misnomer that he pays up for better businesses because he really, or a misunderstanding. It's a, he, he really does. He's trying to get a 10% return. That's I think that's what he's aiming for. His bogey is about 10%. So if he thinks he can get 10% comfortably, then he'll do it. And tying this back to your role as CIO of the Aquarius Fund, in dealing with those long stretches of underperformance for value, is there a difference in investing your own money versus investing other people's money, you think? I have my own money in the fund, so it, it is my own money as well. I, I think about that as I'm investing it. Yes, I do feel the responsibility. It, it is nerve-wracking sometimes. Having said that, I've been doing it for so long that I feel like I know what I'm doing. I feel quite I used to, and I, I I do this every single time. I use Jake's. Jake has a uh, has a little software package called Journalytic, which is excellent if you want to be a, an investor. It's a great way of recording how you feel about investments. And so, you know, I'm I'm very conscious of behavioral errors and cognitive biases. And so, I spend a lot of time recording how I feel about, even though it's a system that is, you know, I I have this. Uh, I don't have a great deal of discretion in the way that the any given portfolio is put together, but I still go through the portfolio and I write down beside each one in journalistic how I feel about the position as we're putting it on. Are you able to remove companies for whatever reasons? Or, I mean, how strict is that? So my approach is that I will remove companies that I think are too risky. So there are companies that 
have terrible i just know the business models because i've been doing it for long enough that even though they're cheap the downside is zero and so when i find something like that the model won't know and i think that even over even if over time it will probably likely cause me to underperform the pure model there's also the risk that at some point in time you could buy an entire portfolio of things that have a zero and you could be wiped out and so i'm focused on not getting wiped out even if that means slightly lower returns that's really the only time that i exercise my discretion and so there are business models that i've seen that they tend to get cheap right at this point in the cycle where we're sort of closer to the end of a of an economic cycle where say so an example would be a credit card company where they you know they've got very thin margin of equity and a significant increase in charge-offs or an inability to collect would wipe them out. And so I, I avoid companies like that. Um, but I always write down in journalistic how I feel about the things that go in. Do I think that it's going to outperform the market or the portfolio? What do I think the risks are? And what I have learned over time is that my instincts aren't really particularly good. You know, my instincts are I'm identifying what everybody else is identifying. I don't have any particularly great insight into these things. Very occasionally, I do think that Meta was an outlier, but most of the time, I think that, like everybody else, this is a terrible business. We're probably overpaying for it right at the wrong time of the cycle. So we bought the Home Builders last year. There was a, so this is another funny little story, but you know, the Home Builders got very cheap because lumber got very expensive. Do you remember lumber got crazy expensive through... Um, not that long ago <laughs> yeah not that long ago right and of course that's a big input into a house and so all of the home builders got crushed and so i bought the home builders but i thought this is a terrible idea we're again closer to the end of an economic cycle housing is one of the um, first things to go in a housing cycle so we i'm probably buying these things at the peak but you know I, they're, they're cheap because because lumber's cheap and i i, I can't override this particular decision because these are good these have been long-term businesses that have been around for a long time and then it just so happens that they put up rates in the states and that makes it so hard to buy a second-hand home that everybody buys brand new homes because they can buy down the the mortgage rate that they pay they lower the mortgage rate and these home builders have the best period of their you know they all make more money than they've ever made before and the stock price follows along with them to the point where um, new homes now sell at the same rate as secondhand homes because the the margin's just been complete, which is totally, which never, ever happens. Normally, there's a huge margin between the two. And so that was just pure luck that that happened for those portfolio companies. But they were bought cheaply enough that they were, they were beneficiaries. So I, don't, I didn't have any insight that that was going to happen. And I probably wouldn't have bought them if it had been up to me because I wrote it in the diary that I thought they were bad. it was a bad decision, but it worked out. So I, I realized that I suffer from all of the same cognitive biases and behavioral errors that everybody else does, and I shouldn't really trust my own intuition. And you're better off relying on the, the model is pretty good because it's buying stuff that's cheap. And when things are cheap, sometimes good things happen and, and they sort of they work out. So it's a, it's a strange it's a strange thing, but that's 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 the nature of it. It's this sort of counterintuitive part of deep value that I really love. I think it's it's what keeps it interesting. 
you mentioned many US-based businesses, but do you have any limitations on what countries you invest in? For these funds, they're limited only to the US. There are just for, that's the simplest way of doing it. When you and this was my first my first public fund, Zig was my per, first public fund, and um, I just wanted to make it as simple as I possibly could. I would like to do uh, international, global investing. It's just it's a little bit more complicated. For one thing, that the stocks trade at times when the ETF doesn't trade, so that's one of the issues. And the other is just that there are different local accounting implementations of IFRS that, that it requires a little bit more normalization. But you know, I, I'm Australian. I've I'm obviously I'm I've invested in Australia in the past, and so that, and Australia is quite different in an accounting sense to the US. And I know that there are, and I've looked at. I, I love developed market investing. I like I understand value in in most developed markets it's very similar to the us so i I would like to do that that would be the natural evolution of the of the business and do you exclude any sectors i don't um i know that greenblatt excludes financials and utilities the problem is that those sectors are very big parts of the economy and they have um if you exclude them, you're sort of inviting underperformance. If they if they get very cheap and then they perform very well, the problem with financials is that they are incredibly economically sensitive. They're sensitive to interest rates. They're highly levered, and they aren't very uh, easy to analyze using an acquirer's multiple approach. So I have to come up with a sort of slightly different approach to include them. But I, I don't exclude anything. I include them um, because I think that you need exposure to them at certain times. And I've I own one little bank at the moment, and I think that there's a good chance that they get cheap and I'll own some more in the future. I don't love the bank that I own at the moment, but again, as I said before, I don't, I don't trust my own intuition either. And apart from investing, I mean, you are quite active. Uh, you're a quite active podcast host of, of Value After Hours, and I wonder. I mean, you've met uh, many interesting guests. Have have had all this interesting conversations with uh, Jake Taylor who is an active active value manager uh, have, have all these conversations changed your view on investing uh, 100% yes it's been from that perspective it's been wonderful to talk to other people and to understand how they approach problems and how they think about it yes yeah, so i've i you know i don't buy individual stocks on the basis of what somebody says but if so, people will discuss an idea and i can take that idea back to my own model and I can see what that would do in my own model. And I have changed. It does evolve over time as I take those ideas and test them. Um, so from that perspective, it's been fantastic. It's also, it's great just to talk to people and see how they, their temperament goes up and down or to, to, as a little bit of a gauge of the stock market and also a little bit of a gauge of them. And then that reflects back on me a little bit how I'm approaching it too. So yeah, it's been it's a great discipline to spend an hour or a week talking to other investors in a forum like that where we're focused and we concentrate and we try to, as much as we're like having fun and kind of messing around and it's not, it's not very serious, but it's, it, it is, um, it's been incredible, yeah. And besides speaking, you're also an active writer. You have written several books and, uh, and not least the one we have spoken about today. Uh, how is your writing habits now? Well, I have three kids who play a lot of sport, and so I spend my afternoons driving the kids around to sport. So it's made my it's made me it's much harder to write because I prefer to write in the afternoon. 
after lunch, I think is a good time for me. So and then th that just as I start writing, they come home from school and we go to soccer or tennis or whatever we're doing. So I haven't been able to write as much, but I like writing because I think, again, this is something that Buffett said. So it sort of, um, that resonates with me that he doesn't really understand it until he writes it down. And I have found that too, that often I think I understand something and I go to start writing it down and I realize that I haven't understood the order of the way that things work together. And so writing it down so that somebody else will read it is a great way of making sure that you understand an idea because when you're writing it for someone else, you have to explain it in a way that you have to explain the logic of the idea to them. And that's when you really find out that you don't understand and you have to research a little bit more or understand some of the, the precursor ideas. So I, I'm, I think it's a good discipline to write ideas as well, even if you don't put them out there for public consumption. But I just write them down and then uh, inflict them on the world after I've finished writing them down. <laughs> I think we should be very thankful for that because you have written a few really interesting books. And uh, do you have any book projects you're working on currently? I do. I'm working on this book now. I I read. Uh, it's called Invincible. And the uh, the subheading is something like Sun Tzu, Warren Buffett, and the ancient art of effortless success. And I know that I don't know what that sounds like, but I read. Um, the Art of War when I was in high school and I didn't understand it at all. And I've returned to it repeatedly through my life. And every time I read it, I, I've always thought it's very much an Emperor's New Clothes type book where people, it's one of those books that people say that they've read and understood it and it was really meaningful for them. And I didn't get any of that reading it. And I kind of thought they were lying a little bit about what they were seeing in it. But uh, I read it again during the pandemic and just for whatever reason, I thought, wow, this is very similar to the way that Buffett talks about investing. And this, the, the, there are lots of examples that I give in the book. But I, I do think that there's this approach to business or sport or investing. Um, I don't really know anything about military. So I'm, it's, not a, it's not a military book, even though it's Sun Tzu. But Sun Tzu basically has a lot of it is psychology. A lot of it is controlling your own psychology knowing that the other person is suffering from the same demons that you are. And um, it, it is participating in a game with a risk of ruin, which investing certainly has. And Sun Tzu's sort of Bronze Age uh, warrior, he, th there was certainly a risk of ruin then. And that risk of ruin changes the way that you approach uh, any sort of game you have to play. Like you, ca you can never go through ruin because that's the end of the game. You have to avoid ruin first. And then everything else that you do after that is, uh, you know, you're limited in what your approach can be because you can't do everything because some of those things will fail. And so I think that Buffett's approach and just putting that beside Sun Tzu's approach really revealed to me that that's the most important thing. So I'm, I'm much more careful now. And I think that that's the main thing that I have changed in the way that I invest is that where previously I would have looked at ideas purely on a, it's still a risk reward basis but i probably was not alert enough to the risk of ruin so i've now tried to eliminate any risk of ruin as i invest and that's what the book is about just that sort of journey and i just think it's nice to put sun tzu sort of writes in this poetic way 
put it beside Buffett, and sometimes it's just uncanny. I don't think Buffett has – he's probably read Sun Tzu, but I don't think that he's consciously trying to be Sun Tzu or anything like that. I just think that it's funny to put the two philosophies side by side, and it's interesting. And so that's what I'm working on now. And you mentioned before we started to record that that your previous books have been very – I mean, you've written them in, in really quick fashion a few months. And this is a really different book. So how how different in terms of, of the writing time has this book been? I think I wrote all of the other books in, in a matter of months, three months, something like that. This is this is three years old. And I don't <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard to write. I don't know if it's because it's the thing that I'm seeing is not really there. But I think I've got it. To, it's almost finished. So I do think it's there. But yeah, I had a diff, really difficult time writing this. I wrote the current iteration of the book is the one that I started with. But in the middle, I tried to go in a different direction and it didn't work. And I spent a lot of time and I almost got to the end of that. And I had written this huge book. And then I realized that it just was depressing, but it was just not good enough. It just wasn't explaining the, the idea very well. So I went back to the original iteration and that's the one that is will be the one that I'll publish eventually. But yeah, it was, I, don't, I don't know why. It's, I've, I've never had writer's block before. You can blame it on the kids. Well, that's, that's, that's what I was saying at the start. It's their fault. It's not their fault, poor little things. But no, it's, it's entirely my fault. I just it, it wasn't writer's block because I was writing a lot. It was just not very good. I don't know how to explain it other than that. And uh, besides writing, uh, can you talk about your reading habits? Yeah, I read uh, a lot and I, I read to go to sleep at night. So I've read since I was a kid. I read probably for half an hour before I go to sleep at night. And so I've, I've, I got a Kindle when my wife was pregnant with our first kid and she's now 10. So it's like I've had a Kindle for about 11 years. And so that was a game changer because I, you can read much faster. And if something's not, if, if a book is no good, I stop reading pretty quickly and just move on to the next one. I've got a huge library of unread books. There is a word for it. There's a great Japanese word for it, which I did, Sondoku or something like that, which is the books that you have that you've never read. And I think Nassim Taleb says that the bigger your library of unread books, the more intelligent you are. So on that basis, I must be very intelligent because I've got a huge library of unread books. But I like really, I read a lot of business biographies until a few years ago. And I, I just, I don't like business biographies so much anymore. I read really junky, you know, so I read the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien, which is what Master and Commander, which I love. And then I've read, I discovered this guy, um, Bernard Cornwall. I don't know if you've ever heard of this name, but he wrote the Richard Sharp series and he's written this other series on um, the, it's England in the 800s, which is Alfred the Great. And he was battling with the the Vikings as they came in. And so it's all about the the struggles. And it, it's like, it's, it's historical fiction in the sense that all of the events are true and all of the events happen sort of in the sequence that they occur in. And it's very, it's very heavily researched, but the characters are fictional and the events aren't. The, the actual interactions, he's, com- he's made it completely. But I enjoy it because I'm sort of learning something at the same time that it's just watching a really junky kind of movie, you know. I mean, is that, I mean does it help, help you with signal, signaling out all the noise with the, with the markets and so on? FOMO, you mentioned FOMO before. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. That was part of the reason that I, I think during the pandemic, I, I couldn't read the business biographies anymore during the pandemic. I felt that they were, I just felt there was, it was just too much. So I needed to, yeah, I needed the, 
and that was exactly what they did. They're just sort of they're junky kind of books, even though there's a you know, I like to pretend like the historical fiction is real, but it's I know that it's it's complete. It's close to fiction. I, all I do is I take away. You know, I did a I did a I did a twenty three and me, uh, which is the they give you the genetic your genetic background, and my genetic background is all. Uh, it's like British and Irish, but then it's all by way of it's Norwegian as well. So I was clearly part of this. My ancestors were clearly part of this, the Viking raids. So I always uh, like to tell my, my my wife is 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 sweet. Is her dad is Swedish? So I say at some point our families were must have lived close by, but we've been separated for you know, <laughs> hundreds of years. I think. Tobias Carlyle, thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts on how we can improve as investors and, and talk about you and your writing and and your great book, The Acquirers Multiple. Uh, do you have something more you want to add here before we finish up? No, I just want to say thank you very much, Nicholas. Thanks, Eddie. It was really fun. It was a it was a very enjoyable chat. Great. And, and lastly, where can our audience follow you and and, and your work? I'm on Twitter at Greenbacked. It's a funny spelling. It's G R E E N B A C K D, or my uh, acquirersmultiple.com or you can find acquirers funds or acquirers fund to sort of track the the tickers for those are zig and deep for my funds and the books uh, if you just search my name on on amazon the books will come up perfect we'll put that in the show notes for all the listeners awesome thank you tobias thank you for listening to investing by the books a podcast by red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.